Uh, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Elo Punters. I have no idea what episode this is. I think it's like 25. Oh, it is 25 because in my like Windows Explorer, I had saved the last episode with Theo as episode 25, but it was actually 24, and now this is episode 25. Okay, we're all on the same page. Welcome to the show. My name's Anurag Das, and I'm here with Bob Wong and Daniel Gochul, and we are a bunch <clears throat> of losers, Sag. How you guys doing? Doing well, doing well. I, I just realized that because you told me it was episode 25, I published it as episode 25. So there is no episode 24. So this will be episode 24. I'm going to like go back in time and like somehow sequence it. So this is ep episode 24. Wait, 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 wait. You you literally can't do that because like, like, like imagine like a thousand years from now, like if aliens come and they find like our podcast series as the one representation of like the human species, they're going to be, they're going to get to episode 24 and they're going to be like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. What the fuck? Bob, no, 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 no. You, you, this is fine. What do you mean How we just we... explained it right here? If they just listen to this point, <laughs> it will make sense. <laughs> what if we errata this to episode 26 then? Or should we just, okay, fine, fine. All right. This is the official episode 24. So welcome everybody. Uh, I guess to episode 24. This has already been a disaster. God damn it. Uh, but what's up, guys? How y'all doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, recovering well. from the LCQs. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, this is, a, this is the second time. So as I was saying, we're losers, and you mentioned the LCQ. So I guess this weekend, there's a lot to talk about um, in terms of magic, and then just like other stuff that's been going on. We had the Legacy Showcase, and then also this week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, there were three separate last chance qualifiers. So maybe like, why are these actually important? Well, the reason they're important is because this is the, okay, it's confusing, but to play in the Mox events, the ones that I was doing coverage for, you have to qualify for the mocks by winning the mocks qualifier. But to qualify for the mocks, to, to play in the mocks qualifier, you have to qualify for that as well. And that qualifier for the qualifier for the main event was this weekend. So you're with me now, right? You got it? Good. Okay. Um, yeah, basically, a lot of magic stuff happened here. But before we even get to that, um, da -da 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 -da, we've got to go through the usuals, you know, the good stuff, the good stuff. So I want to say thank you to our new patrons. We've got... Elliot, Penn, Alan, Jonah, Heigo, Sean, uh, Pan Liang, Ian, Oliver, Dave, Carl, Ment, Zen, Zach, Henry, Kenta, Tommy, Tevin, Eduardo, Zikai, and Francis. And wow, that, that's a lot of patrons. Okay, let's go. That's what I'm talking about. Um, and then also thank you to our wonderful editor at Ellie of the Ville. We need, to, we need to censor that one out. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but thank you, Liz, so much. At Ellie of the Veil. Check her out on Twitter. She does everything to make us sound completely competent and coherent and not like our usual bumbling selves. I don't know if um, that's possible, but she gives it her best. Damn, dude. That's that's toxic, Bob. WTF, mate. No, she does a great job. What are, what are you talking about? Have you heard me talk? Have you heard me talk? That's a rhetorical question. Don't answer that. Um, no, but seriously, Bob, before we even started, you were talking about some like life updates. Um, and then I told you to shut up because we all wanted to like record it for the podcast. So walk me through it. What happened? All right. So some non-magic news to start off with. Um, number one, I got promoted. And number two, I passed the CFA. Those are unrelated, but they both happen to have been, I guess, since the last time I recorded, which was about a month ago since I wasn't on the episode with Theo. Um, but yeah, pretty exciting updates. I've been studying for this CFA exam, which is basically a, a finance exam to become like a, a kind of like an accredited investor in, in a lot of ways. Um, but now I can give Anurag really good financial advice and I'll tell Daniel all about, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin. That's what I'm qualified to do now. 
it's actually so funny that he says that because I lived with Bob for like two years and god damn that was like one of the like the, the biggest roller coasters of like financial like decisions like in my life that I've ever made with Bob there I guess now that's because he didn't have a CFA so now that he does have a CFA like if I moved in with Bob again I'd just get rich so I guess that, that's, a, that's a good thing I suppose um what was I gonna say though so wait, you also got promoted, so now you're like making the big bucks. Totally, I, I nice. can I can just when are uh, you you know coast and and rely on my Elo Punter's career to carry me the rest of the way. Oh my god, dude! I was actually like looking at uh, the kind of like revenue that some people generate from content creation, and it's actually kind of just insane. Like in the Magic Verse, I feel like I, I know I'm just like going on a tangent, but since we're talking about this, I feel like content creators. Um, Definitely, like, I have it a little bit rougher than, like, in other games, like FPS games or, like, you know, MOBA games like League of Legends. Uh, I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but it's just kind of nice to hear, like, you know, good things happening to, to, to I, Magic I mean, think, players. Actually, now that I think about it, I think Magic, is, Magic players is a little different. Like, you're obviously yeah. the, the bigger expert, but, I mean, I think, you know, in FPS games, maybe they have a larger audience. But on the other hand, in Magic, you can create, like, content on your Patreon, on your YouTube um, I guess I guess FPS can do YouTube as well, but I don't know if like I mean I guess they can do like coaching sessions, but it's hard for them to like I don't know write a strategy article on Patreon or give a sideboard. Guide well, they can uh, dump some crypto scams. Oh, that's true. If you're an hashtag influencer. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That's a lot of th actually. That that's a really good point too. Um, I do think that like the audience so, like Magic is. I kind of want to call Magic like a niche game compared to like Call of Duty or like Halo or like Fortnite or all this sort of stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's like the big thing. And then it's also kind of funny, like just like thinking about like how top loaded a lot of uh, like the finances are. Like I think like only like like the top like one percent might be able to make it out of the out of the like the. To make something out of nothing, you know what I mean. But anyways, that's a conversation that's completely irrelevant to what's going on here, Bob. Super congrats on getting promoted and also passing the CFA. Literally, when we were living together, also I remember Bob was like studying for that stuff too. Like I'd be like, "Hey, do you want to go to this 1K?" And he's like, "Well, I can either study for my CFA exam or I can go to the 1K." And so I was like, "Okay, you're gonna make the right decision and go to the 1K, right?" And he was responsible and went and studied instead sometimes, and I was really sad. Um, but Daniel, what about you? What you got going on? Oh, uh, you know, just been losing in LCQs, but at least I took you down with me like a lobster yesterday. <laughs> Dude, tell me about it. I played in all three of the LCQs, and I didn't win a single one. I'm so sad. I mean, I it's only not played that easy two. to win, right? You gotta go 5-0. Yeah, that is true. So the format for the... Okay, so remember I was talking about a qualifier for a qualifier for the mocks. The format for that... It's like a regular eight nine round event, and um, top eight qualifies for the the mocks qualifier. So the mocks qualifier is like a small like twenty four thirty person event, but the showcase challenge that we played this weekend had about like two hundred plus players, and only the top eight may get to make it. However, Watsi in their infinite, uh, I guess, what is it, graciousness? I don't know what the right word is. Um, have created like last chance qualifiers the week after the last um showcase challenge and the winner of that event aka somebody who goes 5-0 qualifies for uh the mox qualifier as well so 
is really complicated, but basically, like, if we had won these events, there was one on Monday, one on Tuesday, and one on Wednesday. If you 5-0 any of those events, you get to play for the big bucks. That's basically the TLDR. And, um, well, I got destroyed, okay? I got absolutely destroyed. Sounds <clears throat> pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. I um, So I played Bant in all three, and I think... My first one, I got knocked out by elves. Then it was by Newton who was playing elves. My second one, I got knocked out by Daniel F. And then my third one, I got knocked out in, by Mono Red. But I'm kind of tilted because I was 2-0. I was 2-0 in that event, and I got the pair down. And I don't know what like the like protocol is. I mean, I, it doesn't really matter what the protocol is. Um, I feel like. In this sort of situation, this is an ethical question. All right, Bob, let me ask you. You're 2-0 in a, in a LCQ. If you get a loss, nobody gets prizes, and you get pared down. Um, so you're playing against someone who has a loss already and doesn't have a chance to make the qualification. Yeah, I mean, there are other prizes, but they, like, barely matter. It's just, like, play points. So in that situation... Yeah, it is literally just play what points, What I do yeah. is I'm like, hey, I'm still alive, and you are no longer alive. Could you do me a favor and scoop to me? And then if they say no, I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, cool, we'll play. I ask them. I don't feel yeah. bad if they say no, and you know that's p pretty much all you can do. Yeah, I, I. So my question is: Is it unethical to ask for a concession? Because I know I obviously had like a like some awkward situation a long time ago where I was battling against Reed Duke, and like <laughs> I didn't realize how slowly I was playing. And like people got really mad. It was a, it was a crazy game. If you like look at it objectively as a match of magic, it was an incredible game. He had ulted Liliana. He had played four him to Torox and three Force of Wills in in my game too. And th those are the only cards that really matter in the matchup. And even then, I was able to draw my whole deck, find my one of Mentor, which was able to carry me through the game. Um, but I played so slowly that I didn't realize there was only two minutes left for game three, and then I got giga flame for that especially at the end of that like i asked him for uh if he'd concede because i think i was live for top eight maybe i don't know of a grand prix and he was like no and i was like all right whatever it's cool but uh in retrospect that always makes me like second guess whether or not i should if whether or not it's like okay to, like ask for concessions and things like that so i just wanted to know like in that situation you know i mean what are the ethics behind all, that's it that's a completely different situation like you didn't know this at the time, but he had like potentially he even had like player of the year on the line um, mm. and, and like the Grand Prix <laughs> invite to world on the line, I think was was that year. Um, so yeah, he had a lot more on the line than you, but uh, like not necessarily that that's kind of the only thing that matters, but there, there are just so many different factors. I think it's always OK to ask and it's always OK to say no. So, yeah, that's pretty much how I feel about it. I know a lot of people are more pure, so like, you know, no, you should never ask, but I, don't, I mean, I don't feel that I mean, way, yeah, especially LCQ. when it's like, you know, for the LCQ, like you said, it's like it, one person is playing for $30, another person is playing, you know, for the dream kind of, um, you know, so I think it kind of makes sense to ask there. Would you ask as well, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, for LCQ, I would definitely ask. Okay, yeah. My uh, thought process was, well, actually, I didn't have a thought process because this was the 3 a.m. on Wednesday event. And I was so f like freaking tired that I just like uh, I didn't even register that that I got the pair down. And it wasn't until after the match ended that I was like, "Wait a minute, this person has a loss, but they just won the round, which means I got the pair down." And I, I like I'm pretty sure like on Magic Online, like people are mostly chill about that. Even if they're not, it doesn't really matter. The fact that I didn't ask at all as like from a competitive perspective is like 
sort of like nagging on me just a little bit. Um, I mean, it happens but, to be. Uh, I have a lot of events where I'm like, oh, I should have asked for the, for, you know what I mean, for a split mm-hmm. or something. <laughs> I don't know. I think in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, we'll probably cover this later, but Blue Ducks did not do very well this weekend. So we we can cover that when we go through kind of some of the showcase results. But yeah, um, actually, before we get there, there's one more like mini topic I wanted to discuss, which was the Onzid sub mini tournament, the 1.2K, which was double elim. That's me. So that's me. You know, we have one Twitter question from at uh, jpintermtg who who is saying, "Hey, is double elim the future of tournaments? Uh, what do you think? How did it go? And do you, what feelings do you have about double elim?" Okay, so for anyone who doesn't know, on Saturday, August seventh, I ran a 1.2k for my subscribers as a like a nice little thank you for for you know whoever could join, um, and paid for it myself. So I'm going to be definitely milking my audience soon for for whatever uh, money I can get to to do that. But anyways, it was a great event. The problem is, is I had forgotten to get a TO for the event. So not only was I doing commentary for the event, I was also doing production and I was also like doing like TO related things like getting the pairings ready, getting the feature matches ready, like handling any judge calls. And I will say that on MTG Melee, like judge calls aren't as much of a problem. But one thing that really did help with the TOing process was having the event be double elimination instead of uh, the regular Swiss in the top eight cut. Um, It was like the thing is, is like when you start off. Uh, you know, round one, we only had about 50 players or so, which is pretty small for a 1.2k, considering that the prize, the, the pay, the buy-in was only like five bucks or something. And then, like by round like five or six, there was only like 14 players or some weird number like that left. And like you can imagine, like the later you get into an event from a TO perspective, it's so nice to not have to worry about like all the other players that have now like not made it to that point. Um, I th- I heard a lot of good feedback about double elimination. I think the big thing is like. For double elimination, once you you don't you don't have to play the whole day once you're dead for top eight. You know what I mean? Like you you lose twice and then you're out and you, you there's no like um, oh you know I'm gonna play like to seven three more rounds that don't really have any meaning. Uh, you know especially if there's no like whatever the prize support is and things like that. Right? It's just like you're done. You can move on with the rest of your day. I I quite like it because from my perspective, like I really only care about one thing, and that one thing is just like making top eight of an event and then like winning. So I don't know. What do you What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I, uh, it's it sounds interesting. I mean, I don't have uh, too much insight. I don't know how you know WotC plans their events and so on, but it sounds pretty interesting for the spiky players because it's like a pretty high EV thing. Because uh, like you just uh, cut out cut out the quote unquote uh, less relevant matches, so you get a, you can just focus on the more relevant matches. So for people who play a lot of tournaments, it can improve the experience. Um, but uh, I don't know how, how the average or how... how uh, yeah, I think you, you the, hit the nail the on the wide... head. Like, it's definitely probably better for spikes, and I think it's also better online. I think when you go to a paper tournament, you know, part of the reason that you're there is to play Magic, hang out with friends. I mean, there definitely are people who, you know, are are still spikes, but then there are also some people who are, you know, playing all nine rounds of the uh, day one GP, even if they brought like, you know, a not tier deck, they're just there to hang out, try their deck out, you know? Um, so I, Ooh, that's a good so point. I think for something like that, obviously WE limbs a lot worse um, when they're just trying to enjoy the playing of the magic. But for, you know, if your goal is to like only care about like the top decks and winning, et cetera, et cetera, then it makes more sense. And, and that's why it's better mm-hmm. online too, is like, you know, you get the freedom to to just go do whatever you want afterwards if it does happen to end early for you. 
Yeah, so I just had another idea, which is I was so the, the thing about paper that you're mentioning is really interesting because especially as we're like moving in and out of like COVID, um, I think and I'm seeing it in chat right now. So if you're not watching right now, we do these things live, twitch.tv slash unzmtg. I just chill everywhere, whatever, it's <laughs> fine. Um, and I see in the chat someone saying, Well, I haven't played magic in a long time in any of these like events. And I really just wanted to play magic. And in those situations, obviously double elimination, not gonna be the best option, right? Because you know, once you're out, you're out, you don't get to play the rest of the day. So in theory, you can modify that for online play, like for play players who do wanna play by having like triple elimination or or have just or just doing Swiss or like, you know, stacking multiple events so that once you're out of one, there's another one to sign up. Kind of like, uh, what is it called? Um, side events at, at, at uh, GPs and things like that. But as people are coming out of the pandemic era, era, like I feel like a lot of people will just want to play Magic, even if they're like dead, you know, just like the, because if you, you know, you know the feeling when you go to an event and you're X3 and then you drop and like the round starts and all your friends go off to play and you're just like, well, I'll, I'll just like sit here, stand here or whatever, you know what I mean? Like it's really awkward and things like that and having a match to go to, keeping yourself busy, I guess is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some people so. like they do side events. Some people are, are fine just kind of hanging out and watching people. Um, for, for me, it definitely depends on the event. So, yeah, I mean, when there are other things to do, like, it can be fine. But mm -hmm. obviously, yeah. if you structure something to be double elim, it's like, you know, most of the players are going to be done by, like, round five. So it's pretty early in the day. Yeah, I uh, I guess that that's, um, it depends on the our audience, which is just kind of good here. Uh, all right, let's say we go into the showcase and take a look at what uh, the decks are. Yeah, we can definitely talk about the showcase. Um, I guess I'm going to start by kind of highlighting the results. So definitely sure. shout out to at Volrath XP, um, Joe Dyer mm -hmm. on Twitter for kind of doing the legacy data collection project. Definitely check out their Patreon if you're like interested in, in data, which I definitely am. Um, so basically they go and collect the win rate of all the decks and they also calculate what the win rate excluding mirrors is so at first there were like a couple issues but wait wait wait, wait. I, I really want to emphasize this like joe and his team they do a really really good job so just so you guys have an understanding of like how complicated this is they went through every single match that was played during this event there were 200 players eight rounds now obviously some players like dropped and things along the way but to go in and like watch each individual replay then you know watch a little bit of it to figure out what deck is what who wins how many times they're like what game it goes to and things like that that that, that takes a lot of effort so really like like shout out to the squad here be sure to check out their patreon for sure i, I don't know do we have the link i'm gonna look for it in the meantime but yeah but bob keep going then i'll probably interrupt you with the link to the patreon yeah no i'll put it in the show notes so so don't worry about that but yeah definitely um... okay cool uh, good thing to call out for them. Um, so yeah, going into kind of the win rates, I, I alluded to this earlier, but it did not seem like the blue decks did well. Last couple showcases, you know, I, I hear a lot of people saying on Twitter, oh, you know, days needs to be banned, blah, blah, blah. Um, but Delver surprisingly, you know, only had a 52% uh, win rate. Um, and then mm. the other kind of top tier blue decks, um, Jet, the Jeskai deck was at 49%. Uh, Bant Control was also at 49%. Uh, and Doomsday, which was kind of the best combo deck, was at 46%. So that's pretty low. Yeah. It's crazy, right? Like, that's actually insane. And, and, and you know you know what's crazier, too, right? Doomsday is at 45% with one of the players having made top eight of the event. So Kai Sawatari went 
01 and then rattled off seven wins in a row to make top eight. And despite that, the deck is still like a sub 50% win rate, which is really crazy then because I'm wondering like if all these blue decks, which are theoretically like the scariest decks in the room, are not doing well, then what is doing well? Yeah, I had a look at that and it was it was hard to pinpoint. It was just, I think it was the decks that were basically quote unquote not hated on. Um so other than like out of the uh, played decks, Death and Taxes did quite well. It was 11% of the meta and had a 54% win rate, so that's pretty strong. Um, but other mm-hmm. than Death and Taxes, it was like you know Goblins did well, Cloudpost did well, uh, Mystic Forge, Yorion, Green Sun Zenith put two players into six uh, six and two. So that was one okay. deck that you lost oh, to. Oh yeah, yeah, I Definitely. lost. I lost to that deck in the showcase. Actually, I was kind of tilted. By the way, the Patreon is um, Patreon.com/slash Legacy Data Collection. But the one of the players on Yorion Green Sun Zenith was. Um, do you know Atsuki Kihara? Yeah, he's a very. He's like a Japanese pro, I think. Japanese pro, very good at the game, but also has a passion for Legacy. And in fact, I think uh, Bob, when you and I did commentary for the Grand Prix Chiba event, he was there in that top eight playing Miracles. Um, uh, I think in the finals almost, and then that's where he lost to like uh, Yuta Takahashi was he the one with on Sneak and Show. No, no, no. There was some crazy guy there who had one Stifle in his deck, which you know, now that I've played with a little bit of Stifle, like I'm, you know, like I could see it, but damn, like that was back then. That was like, like that's some crazy tech. But you know, Kihara was there. He made second place of that Grand Prix, and he also in round three just completely obliterated me. It's actually so funny because when I played against him in the event, like. Turn one, he goes, reveal Yorion. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I thought this is a Miracles Mage. Is he is he playing uh, Death and Taxes now? And then he goes, like, turn one, Noble Hierarch. And I'm like, what? And then he goes, like, turn two, Ignoble Hierarch. And I'm like, what? Is this just Yorion Maverick? He did not play a blue source until, like, turn seven. So I literally thought he was just, like, some weird Knight of the Reliquary Urza Saga deck. And then in game three, he played a saga on turn two and had Force and Veil for my Terminus and killed me with the tokens. It was, it was, I, I could not have been more tilted because it seems like a really good matchup in paper. And I mean, he's just really skilled. So like I, I chalk it up to knowing what the matchup is about and having the right cards at the right time. Yeah, I don't know too much about the deck. I'm like looking through it right now. Um, it definitely, mm. you know, any Yorion deck obviously has a lot going on. Um, you know, he has Omnath. He has Uros, he has Knights, he has four Urza Saga. So it's basically a four-color Urza Saga Yurion deck. I don't even know how so to... it's actually like, like a five-color deck. I don't really know how to describe it. Actually, yeah, yeah, you're right. It has five colors because it also has Leopold. So it's basically Jeez. like Yorion plus all the Green Sun Zenith targets that you kind of dream about. Like you're like, oh, I wish I could play Leopold. I wish I could play Omnath. I wish I could play a Renegade Rallier. Um... Who? What? No, nobody. No, no. What? Uh, all right, never mind. You know what? This is my biases coming out here. I was, I was just about to say nobody really wants that, but then, okay, hold on. I, that is that is false. Actually, I just noticed something, and this actually is causing me many, many questions. Looking at um, Kihara's deck from the challenge, so he has one tireless provisioner in his deck. Um, he cast that against me, dude. Okay, so I was just trying to figure out: is that a tireless tracker? Is that like a no? He literally played Tireless Provisioner against me, and I shit you not, he was going to die if he did not gain six life from the freaking Tireless Provisioner. I was so upset because I had stabilized, and then I was like, okay, I got this, I got this, I got this. Uh, sorry, sorry, I, I sorry. He had stabilized, and I was so close to finishing the game, and then the six life that he gained from the stupid card. Ah, I 
I'm so angry thinking about okay, it. Okay, so so for those who don't know, which I assume is probably most legacy players, Tireless Provisional is a three mana, three two Elf Scout landfall. Uh, when a land enters the battlefield under your control, you create a food or a treasure token. So so now my question is, did Kihara mean to put in a Tireless Tracker and he he like misclicked, or did he want this card in his deck? <laughs> what do you guys think? All right. Daniel, you go first. What do you think? This is a Modern Horizons two card. In his deck. It seems pretty hard to misclick it. <laughs> he's also like, he's a pro, dude. Well, actually, I don't know. You type in like tireless, and then maybe I could see it happen, and then you don't realize because like, if you think it's about it, it's a tireless it, card that is a three mana three two, the same mana cost. I'm just saying it could possible that I lost to a misclick. That I lot. Oh my god! Don't no, no, don't say that. It's gonna make I mean, me even more right, tilted right, well, by the like devil's advocate here. Why do you, why would you play this card in your deck? You know, versus a tireless <laughs> tracker. I guess like why are foods and treasures better than clues? Well, so yeah, go ahead, Daniel. What do you think? Treasure is good with uh, Urza Saga because it grows the constructs and you have more mana. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but clues yeah. are good with Saga too. Technically, if you don't pop them, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Clues are also... I actually think that, like, the way this deck looks, though, Maverick is typically, like, a very mana-hungry deck, and uh, I think you actually do want the mana in some situations, but also, like, the life gain is important, too, because when you're, like, in racing mode against, like, a Murktide region or something like that, and you've got the board sort of gummed up, like, that's where having the extra food could matter. I only say this because it was very relevant when I was, like, attacking with, like, Endurances and, and, and Uros and things like that. So I don't know. I I, I mean I I could see it, but I also really don't want to see it. it. Fixes your mana. Yeah, I mean if you're trying to cast Yorion, I suppose, then uh, you know the treasures mm -hmm. will definitely help. So I don't know. I really wish someone who uh, you know, if there's someone wait wait who listens to this let's podcast. Just, and... Let's do the math. Let's do the math. Turn one, noble hierarch. Turn two, tireless provisioner. Okay. Turn three, fetch fetch. That's two extra lands, and you have four, so that's six mana on turn three. I mean, it's pretty good with zero. You have extra landfall. Yeah, and then turn four, fetch, fetch, and you have another additional three land drops, so or three mana sources. So that's like nine mana on. Did I, did I do that right? Yeah, that's like an, an extra nine mana. That's nine mana on turn four. That's pretty. Wait, that's pretty good. Huh. Those are good against Blood Moon. Yeah. That's you true. Okay. All right. Maybe this wasn't a misclick. Yeah. Maybe this wasn't a misclick. I actually don't think it was a misclick, but um, I think it, it depends on, you know, to your point, like if you really need the mana um, more than the cards, then that could make some sense. Wait a minute. This is not... He doesn't have any red sources in the deck. He can only cast the fucking Omnath off of Ignoble Hierarch. And Birds and of Paradise. And Tireless, yeah, you're right. And Tireless Provisioner. Jeez, what well, the hell? Well, obviously he has Green Sun, so he's, he's not planning on drawing it. Um, also worth noting, he has a Leovold, and his only black source is a Bajookabog. So no good way to fetch that either. I mean, obviously you can, you know, knight for it or something. But uh, I'm, I'm sad. his, his wow. <laughs> extra mana sources for the off-colors, black and red, are basically his Green Sun Zena targets. Like, he has Birds, and he has Hierarchs. Um, and he has mm. tireless provisioner, so I suppose that's yet another reason uh, why he's playing the provisioner over the tracker. Yeah, 
Okay, cool. Uh, what's the next thing you wanted to talk about? So we talked about win rates a little bit here. So why do you think Blue is doing poorly? Because I don't think we've actually answered this question, have we? Yeah, I mean, my opinion is it's one event, so it's kind of hard to tell. If you had to put your finger on something, I would say Death and Taxes, Extra Cloud's new build of the deck, is actually pretty darn mm -hmm. good against... Um, I don't think it's great against Delver. I think it's probably fine against Delver. And if you're a, an experienced Death and Taxes pilot, I certainly think you'll probably you know beat the average Delver player. Um, and, and it definitely felt like the matchup got harder um, when they added Yorion and Extra Solitudes. Um, basically, I found that you really needed to tempo Death and Taxes out. Um, with Without Yorion, I think Delver can sometimes outgrind Death and Taxes. Weird that it might sound. But post-board, you side out mm. your Force of Wills, you have Expressive Iteration, you have a lot of two-for-ones in your deck. You can actually outgrind them, but not if they have, like, you know, if, not if they hit five mana and start chaining Solitudes and whatnot. So... Um, I, I did think that's what I was that matchup got a little bit tougher. I still don't think it's like horrible for Delver. I think it's probably close to 50 50. Um, but I think the innovations definitely made it, um, you know, a better deck. So I think maybe that's one thing you can point to is is death and taxes being built a little bit better against the fair blue decks. But I think the rest of it is maybe just the fact that like a lot of the blue decks were also, you know, inbred. People are playing Pyroblast main deck. And then that gives the opportunity for decks like, you know, Mystic Forge and Hogak and Elves to have a decent showing what if i told you that the reason dnt is also destroying delver as more than it used to before is because of ragavan would you believe me i, I, feel, I feel like daniel ragavan... has opinions on that i was siding well, out ragavan like... against dnt but then daniel's like no you keep them all in and then i've i changed doing that so daniel let's, let's hear what you think well i, th I feel like uh when i play against death and taxes acer vial on turn one is what you fear a lot so i I'd imagine if I play against a Yorion version, they have less turn one Violet would be a lot easier. Like, I think part of what makes the matchup scary for Delver is that turn one Violet can be so powerful, basically. And once you, uh, games they don't have turn one Violet feel so much uh, easier to win than games where they do have it. Um, I mean, Yorion can be relevant, and it is like the most relevant it is, is with uh, Violet, probably. Violet on five. Um, uh, because then you could just pay three mana and instantly uh, uh, get get the vial. But I'm not sure exactly. But I feel like the the Orion version would be a bit easier, just because they have less. Uh, they can't find like basically like they're gonna stumble or in theory they're just gonna have like less optimal turns because they're not gonna have as many plows. Um, I, th I think that's and... like it's not the Yorion that's scary. It's the fact that they have more cards in their deck that are good against Delver. So, like, for instance, like, Cauldra Complete is actually pretty good against Delver, but in a lot of situations you don't want to fetch it, but you do want it in your deck. And then by going up to 80 cards, they can play, you know, four equipment. So then they always have access to the best equipment for any, you know, one scenario. So that's, like, one thing I noticed. Also the fact, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but the Solitudes just give them a better late game, and it means their Recruiter can be, you know, not so big of a tempo negative play basically sometimes they can just you know fetch solitude in a pinch and they, they won't really be down a card um so I, I thought it was more the other aspects but yeah obviously you're right the turn one vial um draws you know are, are less frequent but i thought it was maybe the long the long game cards that were giving me more difficulty um but what about honor question like how do you feel about ragavan specifically against dnt well on the draw it's definitely a bit worse but um on the play if you play like four wastelands and they Caracas. I mean, it can, it can be awkward against Caracas, but the thing is when the matchup starts, um, I'm just thinking, 
point on the, on Ragavan. I mean, it can it can be kind of awkward that uh, Karakis can bounce your one drop sometimes. But one nice thing about Ragavan is they sometimes they try and deny your mana. So playing Ragavan, um, for example, preemptively can uh, can help you uh, uh, build out your mana base. Because for example, imagine if you kept a one land hand on the play. Uh, Ragavan would be a pretty good uh, card to play because it can mean that they won't wait, they can't wasteland you on turn one, or they can't port you as easily. Mm-hmm. Or if you make like one treasure, um, it can be better when when the value starts coming, and it it just means that it's harder for them to like uh, get early. Like uh, like one way that you can fall behind pretty easily is is to turn one Aether Vial, and uh, Ragavan can help buy you some breathing time before Vial comes down. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure I haven't played it. Uh, yeah, I played it a, I, the the matchup a good amount, and I, I think the matchup is mostly about tempo now, um, since you know it's it's a little bit harder to outgrind them, and because it's mostly mm-hmm. about tempo, I'm definitely leaving in all four of my Ragavans, and I'm even you know trying to see if I can maybe keep in a couple forces on the draw, like or or if I do, I, I don't hate it. Um, I used to yeah. usually side them all out, but now I think I'm fine with it because on the draw, like you mentioned, Ragavans a lot worse, but then. You know, if they go, you know, turn one Mother of Runes or turn one Vile, you can, you know, have the Force and have the Ragavan and basically steal back the play. Um, and I think that's like what's what's really key. So yeah, yeah definitely you know, can be a weak card, but it can be really strong as well. So you just got to make like you just got to kill all their creatures. Um, most of the time, the early creatures are Mother of Runes, Stoneforge, Dahlia. You like you want to be killing them anyways. So it doesn't really change that much how you play. Obviously, in the late game, it can be a liability if they're like have a bunch of recruiters lying around and you draw an extra Ragavan. It just it's a dead card. Um, but you're basically not really built to win those games anymore. Yeah, always uh, fourth is pretty good with Murktide Regent because it just protects the Murktide Regent. That's another path to victory. And even if they flicker with Spit, you can play a second Murktide Regent. So I. I've, I've been keeping fourth just because I think it's a good combination with Murktown Regent in the mid game. It can also, mm-hmm. like like you said, you have iterations. So if you play turn one Ragavan and then, like, for example, plow it and you force the plow and then you play iteration, you literally just get the two cards back. So I've been leaving in between like two to four forces in. Also, like you said, some of them play Solitude. Uh, and it's obviously really good against Solitude because you don't even uh, go down cards. They also have to pick your card. Yeah. I I think my <clears throat> so Ragavan obviously like on turn one with protection like if you, if you create if you have the nut draws like volcanic island days and Ragavan like yeah you're gonna you're just gonna be ahead straight up you know what I mean like I don't think it's relevant like what matchup you're playing against but I think what's really important is just like the progression of the mid game um, where like now you have a card like Ragavan as a potential top deck which is answerable by Caracas or even like a one one in play. Uh, whereas before you had cards like Sprite Dragon, you know, which would go over the, in the air and like, you know, not care about any of the ground creatures, or you had like Young Pyromancer, which could go really wide, right? So I'm saying like the efficiency and effectiveness of Ragavan on turn one, it obviously has some downsides because on turn like two, three, and four later on, Ragavan falls off. And yes, while Ragavan can make treasure tokens like to generate more tempo, the card advantage that you gain off of Ragavan is kind of conditional. I feel like there are very few cards you actually like get to cast consistently like 
you don't want to cast Thalia all the time. Mother of Runes is a good one for sure. But then a lot of like white, white casted cards like, you know, Sanctum Prelate, Skyclave Apparition, like these Solitude even, these are not cards you really want off Raghavan. So even that upside is not really an upside to the card here. DNT sort of has like a, hey, what's the meme here? Like if you play all bad cards, then like the monkey won't be able well, to take any good cards. So it's like self insulation. Like making the treasures good enough. It's basically like Death's Right Shaman if you're uh, mm -hmm. making the treasures. But I, I, I would say with Ragavan, like that's, I mean, it's a one drop. I mean, a two drop is going to be better in the late game than a, than a one drop. Um, but it's just, the thing is, if you look at Dozen Taxes, imagine playing Dozen Taxes, actually. The deck doesn't, yeah. it has a lot of expensive spells like two drops and three drops. If you look at how much actual one mana interaction they, one mana plays they have, on turn one, they can either play Acer Vile, or they can play like Plow or another white removal spell, or they can play like Mother of Runes. Um, and usually when I play the matchup, uh, I feel like the card that, like, if they don't have turn one vial, it's pretty easy to keep pace with them, or it's not, it's like much easier to keep pace with them throughout the game, because then you can just play normal game. Just if they have turn one vial, you actually, it's pretty, it can be pretty hard to keep pace with them, because they're going to start cheating on so much mana that it, that they, it's kind of, they're spending like an asymmetrical amount of mana, um, um, and, but, and Ragavan is kind of, uh, helps you um like make it so they can't as easily like have an spend at least a metrical amount of mana i mean obviously it's a bit worse in the, in the late game but i mean i've been playing a, a list with like four dr i've been playing like zero delver recently it's four uh, dragon red channel or four bobble um so i've been it's, the mid game is pretty smooth for that kind of uh, list and then you have the uh four mark tides um, i was not about citing a true name I, I i had it i think in the showcase but i don't have it right now uh, just for now but that's also another uh, sideboard card. I mean, that card's better when you have no Delver, because, for example, since I play no Delver, it's harder. It's, I only have, like, very few real threats in my deck, so that's why it's, it's a bit better to sideboard a uh, true name at, at that point. Um, but, yeah, yeah. basically, <clears throat> basically I, I just want to say, like, the, the key point is really about Acer Vile, because that's the kind of card that can start really uh, making you feel behind, like, on every exchange you take. And... Uh, Ragavan can kind of be another uh, way to kind of uh, try and pressure Vile or keep pace with it. Obviously, it's a bit awkward in the in the in the mid game, um, but I I don't really um, like. I could see maybe trimming one on the draw, but it's the kind of thing where you. I don't know. It's so powerful on turn one, and, and especially well, the list I've been playing with four bobbles. It's you're pretty good at finding ways to spend your mana because. Uh, combination of uh, Dragon Rage Channeler and Bobble means you machine gun through your deck pretty uh, quickly, so it's kind of um, like usually you have stuff to do with your mana, especially with expressive iteration, and you might be dazing and wastelanding going around. Um, but yeah, there's definitely like Ragavan, is, it's, it's like a kind of like a Death's Right Charm that needs to connect, so there can be uh, moments where it's pretty bad, especially if like they have a Karakas, like Magic can draw multiple Ragavans, and you can't wasteland the Karakas, but uh yeah yeah i think like these small things like they they do add up after a while which is why maybe death and taxes is I'm not gonna say that i'm not gonna pick what matchup is like what side is favored here but i will say that before you know death and taxes like death and taxes is now has a higher win rate against delver than it did before because of the all these like small things like adding up to to become one big holistic thing here um but that is kind of an interesting question too that i wanted to ask you you offhandedly measured uh sorry mentioned uh that you're not playing delver of secrets in your delver deck anymore so what the hell is that about uh yeah so it's sort of there's some sort of interesting dragon rage channeler 
uh, discussion or sort of it was sort of like dragon rage handler it can be kind of hard to get delirium and if it doesn't get delirium like let me try and like say how to put it like there's so many creatures now because there's four you can play like um four dragon rage handler four ragavan four merc ties so that's already 12 creatures so now imagine you play delver that's four more so that's 16 creatures um so at first i was kind of like oh it's insane to have uh 12 one drops because I mean, I, I saw somebody on Twitter was saying something that I said where, like, when the deck's just built to have a one-drop and it functions way better when you have a one-drop because the deck plays a bunch of cards like Daze, Lightning Bolt, Ponder, Wasteland that uh, just, uh, if you have a one-drop, you can really take advantage of them. So having a one-drop will make your deck function way better. But basically what I noticed was I just, Dragon Reach Handler, um, I re- if I had a hard time getting Delirium a lot and that just felt costly, like I just wanted to make it better. And also it's like, Mishra's Bobble is not just good that it gives it Delirium, but Surveil one's really powerful because it lets you uh, basically the Scry one effect for free is really good. It's like a zero mana opt. Um, be, uh, like it really smooths out your draw because you can look at the top card and if you want it, then your Dragon Rage channel, you can keep triggering it or you put a card in the graveyard. Like I don't know exactly how to say it, but actually tri- uh, triggering the Surveil one makes the Dragon Rage channel feel a lot more powerful. Because for mm-hmm. example, if you have a list without Dragon Rage channel, you just have less ways to trigger it. And more ways yeah. to trigger it means you get more value out of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also, so I've been liking it. Like I tried, I saw Nathan Stewart one was a list that had two Delver, two Bobble. So I tried it and I played like, I think one or two leagues, but every, I, I kept like my Dragon Raid channelers kept being like one ones um, too much. So like, for example, you play against Doomsday, you obviously want to flip it as soon as possible, or you play against like, it's just um, pretty relevant to get the attacks in. It's a lot nicer when like a three three is a, a lot more damage than a one one. So it's just obviously nice to uh, flip it as soon as possible. Yeah, um, I mean, there's definitely doubt. I, I still think I like Delver more than Dragon's Rage Channeler against Combo because it's it's blue. So what I've been doing against Doomsday and against a lot of decks is I've been just cutting or trimming Dragon's Rage Channeler. Um, that way you kind of, you know, you probably only need 11 or 12 threats against Combo. And so I'm happy just to cut down on those, um, assuming I'm not playing, you know, the Bobble list. Yeah, I've never thought of that, but I could see see that making sense. Because uh, it can be kind of hard to turn on Delirium against combo decks, even though in theory it is pretty nice because it helps you like try and sculpt to find your stuff. That, um, that's like another point about Bobble. Like when you, when you have Bobble, you can really uh, much more easily get value out of like sculptings through your deck with the Dragon Raid Channeler because you just get to trigger it more times. Whereas when you don't have Bobble, you have like four Ponder, four Brainstorm, and then you have like iterations and like forces and, and bolts. But against combo decks, like you're going to be bolting and pyroblasting less. So it's just like Bobble. Uh, um, can really smooth out the channels, especially in combination with Ponder or Brainstorm or Iteration, because like let's say you Ponder, and then uh, you have a Bobble, you can then like put a, a card you don't want, and then put move that into the graveyard with the Bobble for free, so it can really uh, smooth out the cantrips, or especially situations where you have two channelers and then you play Bobble. So I've been, I've been pretty impressed with it, but I'm not 100% sure. I also think Delver is probably pretty good in the actual Delver mirror itself, because it's pretty annoying to deal with, because... Like, you kind of want to save Bolt for Ragavan and Dragon Raid Channeler, and you kind of want to save Pyroblast for Iteration and Murktide. So Delver is kind of like this annoying card where, like, if you Bolt it, like, now you have a second Bolt for Ragavan or whatever. It's kind of like... Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's just like these cards are so good that you can do it either way. You can play the, you know, original 15 creatures with three Murktides, or you can, you know, go heavier on the Channeler and play Bobbles. Like, on, there might be an edge... It might depend on the matchup, but honestly, it's so close, you can't really go wrong. Um, I think what's more controversial is Nathan, who actually won the showcase, 
did not play a single basic land and instead played two steam vents. And I know you tried it, so what's your take on that? Oh, did you yeah, just say steam vents in my format? Because that is uh, <clears throat> yeah. not okay. Yeah, I think it's pretty good. It was actually something Ooh, you like it. People were like, when at first when the deck first came out, I remember people were kind of discussing the mana base, like how many fetchable lands we should have, and like. There's a lot of like people didn't like basic mountain. Like, I remember Wombo Combo was saying, I'll play one island, but I'll never play a mountain and stuff like that. And then we were like, oh, yeah, we could maybe play Steam Vents because we kind of like Wombo was like, I hate basic lands, but you only for Vox is too few. But I don't think uh, we really seriously tried it. But then I, I actually think the Steam Vents is pretty good. I mean, I think Nathan even posted a bunch of screenshots where it was insane spots for him. Like, um, where he had like one land hands, where Steam Vents uh, is just in much better than a basic. Uh, the deck's just pretty color intense because the curve is so low. You have so many red one drops and blue one drops, and also Merktide Regents. Like uh, basic mounting can be pretty awkward. Obviously, it's not uh, you know strictly better or anything, but I'll be trying it. It's pretty smooth. Also, one thing about the basics is it's you have to spend a lot of time thinking about if you want to fetch basics or dual lands when you play basics in your deck. So, then, so when you play all dual lands, that's like 50% easier to play. Like your sequencing is just way easier. Like the fact that all your lands are going to make both colors just means that it's, it's a lot harder to get into disastrous situations because you didn't plan out how you want to sequence your mana. Obviously, that's not like a great argument because it just means you quote unquote have less options. But like, for example, I, I actually played the showcase this weekend and I, I lost the game where I had like Island, Mountain, and like two Merc Tides in my hand. Um, but I'll, I mean, also, I messed up that game in another way, too. Well, I, I guess I might as well say it because some people might not know about it, even though it's kind of obvious. But so I had, I was, my hand was a brainstorm, expressive iteration, and bobble. And I, I just clicked on bobble, and I'm like, oh, wait a second. If I could have just brainstormed, put the bobble on, on top to cast iteration on turn two, which is a pretty nice play you can do because, like, you'd say, oh, bobble is kind of a clunky card to have with your starting hand. Uh, I mean, that's kind of off topic, but it's just like, like, usually if you think about cards that are kind of clunky in your starting hand, it's Brainstorm, Bobble, and Iteration. I mean, Brainstorm's not clunky, but it means, like, you're not going to curve out. But it's nice that you can combine them all to play an Iteration on turn two. Uh, that's just one thing I wanted to mention, because you, you put the Bobble on top of Cast Iteration, then you play the Iteration to get the max value. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so basically I'm, I'm going to be trying Steam Vents. Um, and Nathan posted plenty of screenshots where, where it looked pretty good. I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but it's pretty interesting to me. Like, the deck's so mana-intense um, that... Basically, being in a spot where you're never going to have mana issues is pretty big. I've had a lot of mana issues with this deck. So. Well, so you're not going to have mana issues like the one you described, where you know you can't cast your Merktide, but you're going to lose to Wasteland a lot more. So it's definitely a trade-off. Well, maybe in a way, but also it's like uh, basics can also be bad against Wasteland sometimes too, because like the deck is so color intensive. I mean, that's why it's kind of a tricky thing. Or I could even see playing like only islands and no mountains, but like the deck's so so mana intense that uh, I've just had a, a lot of situations where the basic lands can be so bad, like where you have like Dragon Rage Channeler, Bolt, Ragavan in hand, or or stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, there, like, there are definitely you know turn sequences when you want to cast like three blue spells, and then the next turn you want to cast three red spells. So obviously, from a tempo perspective, that's not ideal for fetching basics. Um, but then on the other hand, it, I mean. Here, like, when we've talked a little bit about sideboarding, but typically for sideboarding, we cut our Force of Wills, and we actually also trim on Wasteland. Like, you want you have to leave at least one for Caracas, but sometimes you cut three Wastelands in the mirror because, you know, 
if the game does go long, it's not actually a card you want to draw. Your opponent can operate pretty well on two or three lands, and any extra lands they draw, they're probably trying to shuffle away anyways. So it's like your wasteland isn't really, you know, often going to do that much in a longer game. So it's actually a card that people are cutting. Um, so I don't know. There definitely is a lot of tension. It definitely kind of depends on the luck of the draw a little bit. But um, I don't know. The way Stefan, one of our friends, put it is like, yeah, I think basics, you know, are not always what you want to be fetching. But like, as long as you figure out when you're supposed to fetch the basics, um, then it can be good to have them in your deck. Um, obviously there'll be times where you naturally draw it and it's going to be worse than Steam Vents, like Nathan showed in his screenshots, but then, you know, obviously there are times when giving you the option to, you know, turn one ponder against uh, a, a Raghavan and then set up a second turn where you can play your bolt through a daze and through a wasteland, like, that can be really helpful too. So I, I would definitely play one island, and I also like the one mountain. Um, sometimes I feel like the deck has too many lands, but then I just, you know, side out the mountain post-board if I don't need it. So... Personally, I, I just like having access to, to those basics and then just, you know, adjusting from there. But there are times, obviously, when naturally drawing Steam Vents is better, but I think there are also times that giving yourself extra options is better. Hey, just as a side note, what do you think the win rate was for D&T against Blue Red Delver? In this 50%. event? I mean, I would have, I don't know, I guess I'll guess 56%. It was 80%. 80%? 77.78 that's crazy yeah, yeah maybe i need to play the matchup <laughs> yeah. more i am two and one against yorion taxes it definitely has felt more difficult than than regular taxes um but if, yeah i mean if what you're telling me is true like delver still was fine it had a 52 percent win rate um what that basically says is like you know the dnt matchup has turned on its head with the addition of yorion um and uh <laughs> that's what that's kind of maybe what drove delver like relative underperformance i suppose for this event compared well, to the last two events where delver did you know very well i will say one thing though is that just going back to the overall meta game right band control also had a 70 percent win rate against blue red delver which i'm not surprised about but this means that so in my mind the best four decks in the room right now band control uh blue red delver death and taxes and then doomsday and of those three other matchups, Blue Red Delver only destroys Doom. Doomsday had like, um, Blue Red Delver had like a eighty percent win rate against Doomsday, which is not a surprise because you know Lightning Bolt and the fast creatures and things like that. But if you only have one good matchup in the in in the tier one bracket, then that might just be another explanation for why Blue Red Delver specifically did not perform nearly as dominatingly as we thought, and. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I thought I had a pretty good weekend just because I'm like, oh, Nason won. He's playing blue-red. <laughs> and then I was like, I looked at the, the LCQs. I mean, obviously, that's uh, you're just looking at the, like, the LCQs and like, oh, it's blue-red in the, in the finals. I, I mean, in a way, yeah. But I, also, the data usually is pretty like, I mean, obviously, that's uh, pretty high numbers to have an 80% uh, win rate against blue-red. But like around 50% is like pretty normal. Like, I feel like Delver's win rate is usually around there. Like, wasn't it when it was like Renin 6, the win rate was 55%. People are like, okay, it's time to ban it. Now the win rate's like, I don't know, 46%. I mean, that that percentage difference in my head's not that not that huge. I mean, it is it is pretty pretty big in a way, but I don't see the decks as being that uh, fundamentally different. I mean, through, if you look at the past decade, I don't think uh, 
you know, Delver, like it, it usually squiggles along with a 10% between 45 to 55. And I don't see it as being it that radically I mean, different when it's, it's at 45 it's more, to 55. I mean, I, I, I guess we haven't really had access to the data, but I would guess Delver's win percentage is typically between, you know, 52 and 50 seven percent like on aggregate and sometimes when it's on the higher end you know we see things get banned um mm. but uh well okay follow-up question in the chat right now is how does this uh take into account players that don't play legacy normally and have picked up the deck and then you know didn't do too well just because you know delver at the end of the day is a deck where you do need to get every single advantage that you can um but but for example like not every single delver pilot was Bob Wong or Daniel Gochul or Nathan Stoyer, right? Like there are other players out there and you know, how, how does that factor into this calculation? I mean, is that even a reasonable thing to ask? Like when you look at average data versus, cause like, what if, what if every band control player was, uh, I don't know, name a good band control player, right? Or like every death exists. and taxes player was, <laughs> was XJ cloud or like Jason Murray or something like that. Right. Or every doomsday player was Kai. Then like what, then at the end of the day, like the numbers, yeah. if, if and, and you, you, know you brought up like, like a really good point, and that's what I was trying to say earlier, but I just forgot. But it, it basically, you know, when we're talking about this data, it's all on aggregate. So, you know, the Yorian DNT matchup against um, the blue red Delver player in aggregate, the Yorian DNT player won 78% during this one event. Um, so, but then, obviously, you know, the best D&D player versus the best Delver player, it's going to be a lot closer than that. Um, so, I mean, that's obviously something you need to kind of consider for these. Um, I still think it's it's good to look at the aggregate number because it still shows kind of, you know, what's happening over periods of time. Um, it's not going to be the perfect story of what the matchup is. But, um, you know, if something is extremely imbalanced, usually the good players kind of figure it out and then exploit it so that it's like no longer imbalanced. So it is still kind of worth keeping an eye on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely hard to take information from the data. I mean, it, it depends uh, what your perspective on using the data is because usually at the end of the day, it's probably one person who's trying to look at the data to choose what deck to play for themselves. So you kind of have to, there's, so there's kind of a lot of noise in the data and you kind of have to uh, build your own narratives out of it and, and interpret your own meaning. Like, uh, so like that, that's what I would say. Like you, you kind of have to build your narrative. There's a lot of kind of uh, noise or random information that happens. Like you don't want to get fooled by randomness. You kind of have to think, you know, why the numbers are what they are and build this theory and then kind of this, and then see how it, how it, how the theory works in practice. Like the reason I like Delver is because uh, I think like most matchups are fine. You don't really have that many weaknesses. You just have good cards and, and you play them every turn. So so the, it's kind of like even no matter what the numbers would say until I started losing a lot, I probably wouldn't stop playing the deck just because I like it on a theoretical level mm -hmm. and stuff like this. But okay, okay. So let's let's actually transition to our our second topic. Um, which is kind of a little bit of a grab bag of topics, but I guess one thing I want to focus on um, is basically, you know, what our kind of magic goals are in general, and then, you know, what do you do when you start hitting kind of a losing streak? Because I, I think all three of us kind of hit that this weekend. None of us, you know, ended up qualifying for the showcase qualifier this time around. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Why don't we start with you, Daniel, like, so you're, you're, you're basically just saying like, you know, because you believe in the deck and kind of the theory behind it, like, 
even if you hit like a rough patch, you'll kind of just keep soldiering through. And I think Delver is a deck that's like pretty good at making adjustments. Like there are there are really good hit cards against death and taxes. Like if you really wanted to win the matchup, you can start playing you know sulfur elementals and some other cards um, to shore it up some more. So um, so so you're basically like you look for a good theoretical foundation of like what you want to be doing in Legacy, and then you just like keep soldiering through even if like hypothetically like you're winning below 50 percent of your matches for you know an extended period yeah, of time. I mean, you, you can you can see how stuff uh you know plays out in practice like i've had to make a, a bunch of random adjustments like for example one thing about delver is you know if you look back at lists from five years ago people used to play like four spell pierces main practically i mean not literally but it might have been like two spell pierce two spell you know what i mean there's way less counters the combo matchup matchups actually got a bit trickier. So then you kind of had to readjust like how much to play for combo, um, and and how how much to hedge for mirror. So like when I play Delphrat, like I've been basically changing my deck list every week to try and uh, keep up with uh, you know what how it feels going on. But I feel like overall the deck's pretty good, especially like n none of the other decks really impress me that. Like whenever I see any other deck, I see there's so many ways they can lose the game so easily. Whereas I feel like when you play Delver. Uh, you, you do make it pretty hard for your opponent to beat you because your deck is just like low curve. Like if you look at legacy, like vintage cube and vintage cube, you can play busted combo decks or mid range decks, but you know, the pretty powerful cards, it's just like cheap cantrips, cheap interaction and cheap threats. So I think that's just like a pretty uh, good strategy. Like you might get lured looking at all these fancy decks that can do all these crazy things, but then you see all like, like how, how necessary is it to have all these expensive threats? How, and like, and I feel like the Delver, like the fact that it's so lean, it really, uh, everything's really kind of, I don't know how to say, like necessary and everything's really like doing the max amount of work makes the deck uh, uh, pretty uh, pretty good. Like I, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with it. I mean, like I, I saw, like when I saw Nation 1, I'm like, yep, you know, the the deck won, you know, you got a good pilot in the, in the hands there. So, mm -hmm. uh, and... Well, okay, here's a, yeah. I don't know if it's a good counter argument because I'm thinking back to the Grand Prix that you won. You played Stoneblade instead of Delver. Obviously, that was a long time ago. It was, you know, before all the fire cards were printed. So maybe the cards you could play in Delver at the time were a little bit less efficient. Like, you know, there was no Deathrite Shaman, too. That was after Deathrite was banned. So maybe that was like... I mean, it was Bowmat, basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah, the, the super high-quality card Bowmat Courier that's seeing play in Legacy Madness. But I don't know. Do you think that's like... Maybe it's more recently that you've come to this point of view like do you, or do you think hey maybe you were actually supposed to play delver during that um yeah i have a tournament I have a way different uh uh perspective on magic now because i have new opinions over the last two years i mean back then it's actually pretty interesting because i was watching some pt 25 anniversary coverage recently and i did think that was a pretty interesting legacy format but but that tournament had death rate like no, no, that was like the that was like one month after Deathrite was banned. Oh, so nobody okay, had okay. Deathrite, and it was pretty interesting. Like Alan Wu, one one was Death and Taxes, um, but a lot of people played like there was various Delver like, and that's a that's a place where there's a lot of good legacy coverage. Like you can watch Jacob Wilson; he's playing like Rug Delver with with four Stifles. Uh, Jonathan Sukunek was playing Grixis Delver, um, and he had an interesting list with like three Anglers, three True Names, two Beer Blossoms. Uh, like Reed Duke played Grixis Control. Uh, for the people who remember, you know that deck, and there's a lot of a lot of people play like Eldrazi or Reanimator. Like it was it was a pretty interesting meta. Some people were playing Blue Black Shadow. Uh, some somebody top 16 with three think twice. I don't know what that was about. Like, <laughs> oh cool my! Deck. But anyway, I thought that was a pretty interesting. 
Awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought that was a pretty interesting format. Like sometimes I think like what would, like what would I regret to that uh, format format because basically the thing about Delver was there wasn't as many uh you know good one drops to pair with stays. Though I, I do like Jonathan Supernex Freaks' Delver deck because he had three anglers which works pretty well with Wasteland and Days because you can kind of uh, use that as a pseudo one drop. I, I do feel Delve spells are like usually are like asymmetrically powerful compared to the, a lot of the creatures you can play just because paying one mana and getting five five or that that's that's that is such a big value difference then the true names are pretty nice because those are creatures that can just like get you a lot of um put your opponent in like like really tough positions like you play against eldrazi and death and taxes and shadow and all these decks and then true name is so powerful um that uh you can kind of like it's a pretty good threat to play and then he had a couple of Bitter Blossoms, which was because I believe Grixis Control was really popular or an expected deck at that point. And then uh, Bitter Blossom is uh, pretty nice against uh, the Grixis Control decks. And also, I was watching on coverage, it was pretty good against the people playing Death Shadow, too, because that can be kind of a tricky matchup for Delver. But, uh, you know, I saw one game, he, I saw he had like a true name and a Bitter Blossom against uh, Death Shadow deck, and that was pretty insane. Um, Okay, uh, but but back to my but, original question, which is yeah, like, Stone, Stone like do you think oh, you yeah. should have played, you know, Delver over Stoneblade, that Grand Prix that you won? Well, I remember uh, the lot. The reason I played Stoneblade is because I thought uh, it was really good against the Chalice decks compared to the other blue decks. Like I thought that Stoneblade was so much was so good against the Chalice deck. Or I, yeah, I thought Stoneblade was pretty good against the Chalice decks, and I didn't feel like the other blue decks were that favored against the Chalice decks. So I thought, you know what, I'll just play Stoneblade. I mean, I only played against one Chalice deck. That, that whole weekend, so it ended up not being that relevant, but that was kind of my thought process, so I'm not sure exactly uh, how true it was. I could have to go back and, and play more of the Grixis Delver deck um, at the time. Yeah, I mean, back then, I think Chalice was certainly more of a thing, so I guess the, the point stands that, like, it was a different time back then, so I think the decision-making yeah. there... But, I mean, the Grixis, Grixis Delver did have some decent game, because, like, if you look at Jonathan Sukunek's deck, I mean, True Name's pretty decent, and, um, you know, Gurmag Angler can be decent against Chalice decks, or, and so on, you have decent yeah. options. So, I, I have to, like, I, if I was testing for that format again, I'd probably try Grixis Delver, but it was definitely, um, uh, you know, yeah, well, it's a bit different now, and it's, it's just a lot lower power. It was a lot harder to, like, get card advantage, and... Um, just a lot of the threats were, were weaker, even though I guess it was only like two years ago or something. But <laughs> I, I do like Stoneblade, though, because I basically, like, the combination of Stoneforge and True Name is pretty good. And you basically give up the option to play, like, it's like, would you rather have those cards or would you rather have, like, a cheaper curse with, like, Days and Power Blasts and Wastelands? So I'm not exactly sure. I don't think, you know, I think Stoneblade was, was probably pretty decent. Though at that weekend, I literally just played, like, a bunch of Blue Mirrors where, it, like, if I played Delver, it would have been, like, the same thing, I guess, sort of. Like not like true name is Snowforge were that good for me, but so yeah. so I'm not sure. I'd, I'd have to play more. Like uh, it's hard. It's uh, it's hard to tell because Grixis Delver. Uh, like I, I don't know. I, I do think Grixis Delver probably was still really good. One of the best decks uh, back then, probably. Too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, it's pretty simple though. I play one deck because that's I. That's what I know how to play, and I enjoy playing it. And uh, Bob asked me this question years ago after Top got banned. He's like, yeah, are you going to play Delver? And in fact, Bob and I, we, we did it. I, I did it. We, we, we signed up the month after uh, Top got banned for a team SCG event. And we were like the, the unholy trinity. It was me playing Miracles. Bob was on Grishelbrand. And then we also got Zan Syed as our third for Standard. And he's just, it was a new format. And that's where Zan is just, you know, peak performance. And then, like, April 24th rolls around, boom, 
Sensei's Divining Top banned. So I struggle. I'm just like, all right, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to register Grixis Delver. And it's probably like the worst tournament ex- tournament event of my life. I, j- I played so badly. I just It was it was just crazy. I don't know. And uh, at that point, I just sort of realized that I am a casual and I'm just going to play my deck because I enjoy it. And everything they say about legacy players liking their deck and sticking to one deck is, is just, yeah, that is just what it is. And uh, even like through thick and thin, like when the deck was not very good, you know, and now that the deck is good, like I just pl- played it. You know, I, I don't know. I... Uh, like yeah, like there were like periods where like control was like really bad, Underwater and I breach. think, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that, that that point that's a good point. I at that, that point I switched over to Underworld Breach, um, because well, Breach was just by an in and of itself was a deck that I loved and it was very fun and I enjoyed it a lot. And I don't know if you can hear the sirens outside, but hopefully not. Um, and uh, it's it's mostly for me just play what I enjoy. I mean, Magic at the end of the day, Legacy at the end of the day is like it's a casual format, and I'm just doing what I enjoy. Um, and what, what else? What else? Oh, yeah, when it's bad and I'm losing, at least for content creation, I think that is a nice little avenue for me where, like, I can pick up another deck and play it on stream, and then, you know, that, that'll, that like, sort of satiate my desire for, like, whatever, winning, I guess, because at the end of the day, like, I, I, I do want to win. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to just, like, sit there and, like, get beaten, like, every single match. That is just not a fun experience. Um... But then, yeah, I just pick up another deck and play it casually. And then when, like, tournament time rolls around, I, I don't know. Like, I'll still play in these events with control, but, you know, whatever. Competitive competitive legacy, competitive magic just in general, like, can't have everything you want, especially when it comes to legacy, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think yeah, you're yeah. decently set because it's basically impossible for, like, blue control to be bad from here on out. They've just printed so many insane cards for control um that i i think it's always going to be like pretty good i mean same goes for delver i guess so uh yeah both the blue tempo shell and uh, assuming you know they don't ban something um and the blue control shell are going to be you know archetypes you can stick to and it's basically it's been pretty rare when like you couldn't play both archetypes at a tournament and then have a really reasonable chance of winning yeah yeah I mean, I would say the the first time I played Delver, like in 2014 or 2015, I remember I was like, how are you supposed to win with this deck? It's like a Mongoose is like a one mana one one. Like I remember, like I was playing death decks for like Delver is a one two. Well, I guess I got to bolt that. I got this. Like, and I, I remember like a lot. And then when I tried to play Delver a few later, late, uh, years later again, I was like, how are you supposed to win? These cards suck. Like I'd rather play powerful cards. But I think uh, Delver is the kind of deck where uh, you kind of like want to. Uh, have an idea of like uh, how you want to use every card for like you can't like play it and learn while you play kind of or i mean i guess you could maybe but it's the kind of deck where you kind of uh like uh, you you have to have like sort of a plan of how you're going to use every card mm-hmm. because it's kind of hard to just uh, yeah i, use I also a card turn. find that the latest blue red delver deck is really hard to play there are so many small sequencing decisions with dragon's rage channeler you know even if you don't play mishra's bobble you have to be planning like several turns ahead um, and you have to be like, oh, you know, if I do cast the Force of Will this turn, what card do I want on top? If I don't cast the Force of Will this turn, what card do I want to cast on top? What is the chance I'm casting a Force of Will this turn? There are so many small decisions with that card um, that I, I find... I, is- I really, really... Like, the more I see Dragon's Rage Channeler, and I, I think that that card is actually, like, decent design, uh, unlike Raghavan. I think Dragon's Rage Channeler will be, like, a nice little stable forever. By the way, Bob, you didn't answer that question, the one that you asked, but I think I know your answer. Well, okay, hold on. I, I asked... All right, so I still want to challenge you some more. 
okay, in this hypothetical scenario that you mentioned, you know, maybe control is not very good. Like maybe it's like, okay, you can win, you know, some good matches with it, but it's probably like closer to an average, you know, 50% win rate deck. And then you start streaming some random decks and you find this, you know, chalice deck that you're winning a shit ton with. Um, you're still going to play the chalice deck at a big event. Like, I feel like I know you well enough to like say that I, I still think you would do that. Dude, every time I don't register Terminus in like big, big, big events, I always get punished. I don't know what it is, man. I mean, yeah, I would probably... The thing is, is like, okay, first of all, that kind of hypothetical, like it would just never come true. Like even when Ren and Six was legal, I found a way to play Terminus in that deck. You know what I mean? So I guess the moral of the story is, yeah, I would just put Terminus in my Chalice of the Void deck because that's just my, you know, my, uh, what is it called? My strength or whatever, like my, you know, like strengths and weaknesses or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I would find a way to like morph it to like play patterns that I enjoy while also keeping it competitive. I, or maybe, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. We need to actually get to a point again where control sucks and then there's a big event on the horizon so that I can like put my money where my mouth is. But what about when Valky yeah. was legal? I remember that legacy. I still played Delver, but I guess Delver was a, was unique in that it, you could I totally Valky forgot about Valky that that was like two weeks of legacy that that was the format. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of like a hypothetical situation where everybody was like, oh, this, this Valky deck's tier zero, like, you have to play it. So I don't know what happened to Control. I, mean, I remember I mean, you, you played, you played Valky during that format instead of Control. I mean, maybe longer term you would have went back to Control. It's hard to say, but yeah. I don't yeah, know. This is so yeah, I don't know. I, um... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to think that I would make the competitive, like the competitively in, no, the, whatever, I'm talking about competitive in integrity and like I would make the choice that would give me the most match win percentage, but I think at the end of the day, like, I would just not feel a deck and then I wouldn't play it, right? Like, I, and I'm going to say it too, Bob, like, I think at the end of the day, like, you are also of the same, like, elk because like... Remember when you played Miracles, like, before, and you, like, we, we made the finals of uh, Eternal Extravaganza, and, like, you were, like, you'd be, like, all right, turn one top, and then, like, you'd shudder, like, a, sh like a it'd just go down your spine, and you'd be, like, I can't believe I'm doing this, like, you know, you did not like it, right? And, like, have you played Control ever since? Well, it's never been that good since, so, I mean, I've played... Sure, like, okay, dabbled, but then, like... But yeah, definitely not really. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely... Be there are certain decks that I avoid, but it's pretty much... Like, I, I've avoided Death and Taxes, Elves, and Control, but I've played a lot of Chalice, Combo, and Delver. Have you played Underworld Reach? Mm, I was about to play that deck, but then it got banned, thankfully. I, I did switch to that deck when it was illegal, but that was so broken. Like, you couldn't... I remember, like, yeah. Like, somebody was playing Delver, they're like, Delver is good against Combo decks. So I'm like, okay, let's go. Like, <laughs> Underworld Reach on them. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, I think uh, this is a good point to wrap it up. So it's kind of an interesting question. I want to know if you're listening right now, what your thoughts are. Are you the kind of player that would, uh, you know, take the best deck to the tournament regardless of what it is or for legacy specifically, or maybe even like modern vintage, some format like that. Do you have a deck that you really enjoy playing that you stick with th uh, through and through? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, also, I think we had a pretty good discussion about like, yeah. no, sorry, I, I didn't the, give my like, answer yet, but I'll, I'll give it like, I'm, oh, I'm, I already, I already answered you it for you. It for you're me. a casual. Okay. Dude. okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess you're not too far off, but basically I would say that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty competitive. There are definitely archetypes that I prefer to avoid. Um, but at the same time, you know, like I've been playing Delver a lot recently and I've just not been winning with it. And I've been like trying to believe, be like, okay, this is still the best deck. I just need to, you know, change how I'm playing a little bit. 
and I'm still it's 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 one of those things where you know I played Delver for so long that you know I I believe that I'm competent with the deck but then like I look at my results I'm like wow I'm really not winning that much with this deck um you know what am I doing wrong so I'm still like in the stage where I'm like trying to figure that out um you know maybe it's just bad luck and that's that's one of the hardest things about magic too is you know we talk a lot about skill and yes skill is what matters in the long run but you know for two weeks i played i didn't even play that many matches i played maybe 25 to 50 matches and i did not do well so like it's really hard to say for those 25 to 50 matches like how much of that was luck and so i'm trying to like you know it's hard to just internalize the fact that sometimes it's like it's hard to figure out what's going on in magic um and that's one of the most interesting things it's like not black and white right like you can't just like immediately figure out oh this is what's going on like this is what's right this is what's wrong um you can't just tell and it's kind of over like it's it's there is a lot of art to it as well figuring out you know how to best show up to a tournament what are the best cards to play um things like that of that nature so i'm definitely struggling to quote unquote like keep the faith and and keep playing delver um but you know after hearing what daniel said you know I, I agree, Delver definitely seems to be the strongest or like one of the strongest fundamental strategies that if you kind of like look stick man, to I'll it, tell you right you now, if, if I can fit predict if I can fit predict into this Delver deck, I probably play Delver. Cause I'm already like halfway there. Last night it was two AM and I was playing Counterbalance Predicting Dragons Rage Channeler. That's all I'm gonna say for now. Well, um I, I would say one thing about the lower win rate. I mean maybe yeah, maybe there's a... Uh, with Delver, like especially like it, like blue had a had a lower win rate on the weekend, like sub fifty in a lot of places. I would say maybe with Legacy, it might be harder to uh, have a deck that has an edge over the format because there's so many broken cards. I mean, I feel like the formats become a bit more like vintage or modern in the last years, where basically meaning um, there's a lot more cards that uh, basically the threats are better. Like there's a lot more ways to get card advantage at, at a cheap rate. There's a lot more threats that when you play them, they have to be answered quickly or they run away with the game quickly. There's a lot more like curving out and stuff. So I just feel like um, there might be more, it might be easier to lose games quicker because there's a lot more uh, basically powerful threats and a lot of various powerful threats. So uh, you might have like, uh, so I was going to say like the format's changed a bit over the years and it feels kind of a bit more... uh, yeah. Maybe a bit more fast-paced in a, in, a, in a way that's like a bit more like vintage or modern, where it's a bit, maybe a bit less you can do some games, but I'm not sure exactly. Cool. All right, guys. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. You guys know the drill. If you're already listening to this, uh, let us know what your thoughts are. Uh, be sure to check us out, elopunters. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Twitter.com slash elopunters for any questions or thoughts or whatever. And then we'll be posting there with uh, input for the next one. So if you want your question featured on the the podcast, be sure to be sure to check us out there. On that note, that's going to be me, Anurag, uh, Daniel, and Bob signing out. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.